All right, church. Well, today is a pretty special day. We are jumping right back into a sermon series that we actually put on pause when COVID hit. Uh, So if you have been with us since before COVID, you remember that we were going verse by verse through this incredible book of the Bible called Romans, a book that Paul wrote to the church, this newer church in Rome. Amazing book. In fact, it's one of the most... uh, Profound books in terms of the theology that you can pull out of it. A lot of the, 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 the basic foundations and roots of the Christian faith you can, you can trace right to the very pages of this book. And if you remember where we left off, we had just got done preaching through Romans chapter 8. All right, now how many times you heard this, me say this, if you were with us, Romans chapter 8 is considered by many to be one of the most glorious, if not the most glorious chapter in the whole Bible. There is therefore, here's Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, for the law of the spirit of life has set me free in Christ Jesus from the law of the spirit of sin and death, for God has done what the law could not do by sending his son in the likeness of flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Yep. Once I memorized the whole chapter a long time ago, it's a good chapter to memorize. But the reason it's so important is because it highlights the centrality of the gospel. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. That is good news for sinners like you and me. And we celebrated that through a series of sermons. Now today we're in Romans 9, the next chapter after Romans 8. And we're going to continue through the rest of the year, through the rest of the book of Romans. If Romans 8 is the great glorious Uh, gospel truth, Romans 9 is the anchor that secures that truth firmly in your life. So if Romans 8 is the great news, Romans 9 is that anchor that makes sure it says that news ain't going anywhere. You need Romans 9 to secure the good news of Romans 8 for you. Now, before we dig into 9, chapter 9, I've got some warnings, uh, kind of some preconditions to engage this text with me today, and they're important, so please listen up. Number one, This is a lengthy chapter, and I'm going to be preaching it, for the most part, verse by verse. Uh, What that means is we're going to cover a lot of ground today. Bear with me. The words are important. The text is important. I want us to know God's word and what it says. Number two, the doctrine we're going to cover today is difficult, uh, as are a lot of doctrines of the Christian faith. And it's difficult, not because it's difficult to understand, but I would say it's emotionally difficult. What do I mean by that? I'll say this. When I first encountered this doctrine and I began to learn more of my Bible and I came across Romans 9, I remember leading a Bible study in Romans 9 before I really understood what Romans 9 was teaching. And even as I was first leading it thinking, this is tough stuff. This is very difficult to fully digest. Some of you will be thinking about particular people in your life as I preach through this text and how a person is saved or not saved. And you're going to be thinking about those whom maybe you love, whom aren't saved. And you're going to be wondering about God's purpose in their life. And what I want to encourage you is that there are glorious truths in this chapter. And I'm well aware of some of the emotional hurdles this chapter has for us. And in fact, I carry that with me pastorally as I preach this text. I'm thinking about you, our church, and the stories I know in your life as I preach this. And so please hear that compassion coming out of me as I preach. Number three, the doctrine I'm going to be teaching on is unconditional election. 
okay? Now, that's a very important term. If you're a Christian, you should know that term, unconditional election. If you recall, when we were in Romans chapter 5, we taught on a doctrine called total depravity. Basically, that every human being, no matter who you are, except for Jesus Christ, has been born in sin, so much so that you could never reach God by your own strength, right? right? That was Romans chapter 5. Today, we teach on unconditional election, which means that God, before you were born, has selected who he will receive as those who will have faith, right? God has selected before we were ever born those who will be saved, whom he will have mercy on. Unconditional election. He elected those whom he will have mercy on before you were even born. uh, Fourthly, this is not a trivial matter. Here's what I know happens. Sometimes when I talk about, you know, some of the more theological terms, things like total depravity or unconditional election, sometimes I know folks have a tendency to tune out when I say those words. I want to challenge you, like I taught the children just a moment ago. When you learn truths about God, it ought to form worship in you. It ought to change how you think about God. It ought to, the Bible ought to rightly set your vision for who God is, what he's like, so that we're not thinking wrong thoughts about God, and then it should stir you to worship. See, I always want to study the Bible with the desire to foster worship in our people. I want us to know and love God and bring our whole being into this knowledge of who he is and what he's done for you as a follower of Christ. And so do not turn off from this chapter. Engage it. Let it sink into your heart and bring it with you into your prayer life. Okay, that's my setup. Now let's jump right in. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. Paul says this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Whoa. I could wish that I were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever Amen. Now, what I want you to see here is, one, Paul's introducing us to the topic of what we're going to be discussing today. And he brings up, he's starting by just saying, he's talking about those who are ethnically Jewish. And he says, remember, it was those who are ethnically Jewish who a long time ago in the days of the Old Testament, God had selected the Israelites And he said, I'm going to bless you with all these things, the covenants, the kings, the prophets, the promises, all the stories of the old covenant, the Old Testament that we read right here. I'm going to bless you with all of it. Why? To be a blessing to the nations. As I pour my love into this people group, the Jewish people of the Old Testament, then what will happen is it will flow through you and you will be a light to the nations. They were the ones who received all of it. They gave the law. They had the prophets, the promises. And what Paul is doing is he's looking out, chapters 9 through 11, what Paul is doing is he's looking out over the the early church, and he's thinking in his mind, and he's answering a question that people have. Well, if the Jews of the Old Testament were the ones who had all the promises about who the Messiah would be and what he would do and what he would accomplish, but largely 
many of the Jews throughout history have not believed in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Does that mean that God's promises have failed? I mean, if they were the ones whom all the promises were made, and and it's mostly non-Jewish people, it's Gentiles throughout history, and even in the early church, majority, it seemed like wherever the, 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 the gospel went into Gentile territory, there was explosions of faith. And when, it, when they would go to like the synagogues where the Jews were, some would believe, but many would not. Did God somehow fail in his plan? And before I actually answer that question, I want us to look for just a moment at, at Paul's heart here. This is amazing. What I just shared with you is the context of which he's writing Romans chapter 9, trying to address Jew and Gentile in the church and what God's up to. But did you see Paul's heart? I mean, if this is not a Christian heart, I don't know what is. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He's talking about his Jewish brothers and sisters that aren't believing in the Messiah. Paul was Jewish by birth, ethnically Jewish. He's saying, I could wish I was cut off from Christ, damned. If only they would be saved. Have you ever had that kind of faith, that kind of heart yearning, longing for somebody who doesn't know Jesus yet? Does that bubble up inside of you? Because when I look at the scriptures, that seems to be the heart posture of everybody I see in the Bible. In the New Testament, Paul, Peter, John, James, everybody seems to have this overwhelming passion that those who don't know Jesus around them would come to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. It's right here. He could wish that he were cut off from Christ. Do you have a zealous burden inside of you to see everybody around you who does not know Jesus Christ come to saving faith in Jesus? It's what Paul had. I want to foster that in you if you have not developed that yet. Has the word of God failed? Let's get back to the question. If all this is true, if Jesus is truly the Messiah, and yet the Jews are not believing, does it mean that God's plan has failed? Verse 6 through 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Notice how he's addressing it directly. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and here's a quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, end quote. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So the question Paul is asking is, why aren't more Jews believing in this gospel, this good news of what Jesus Christ has accomplished? And Paul makes his primary point in verse 8. He says that, what did he say in verse 8? He said, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise. Now, what's a child of flesh? A child of flesh is someone who is born ethnically Jewish. Remember, they had the mark of circumcision. Literally, it was a fleshly mark that identified you as belonging to the Jewish community. And, and so Paul is saying, look, if, you're, if all you simply are is someone who received the mark of circumcision, it's a mark in your flesh, and you think that that makes you good with God, you got no real faith. You don't really trust God at his word. You don't really actually have faith the way God says you ought to have faith. What you've done is you've gone through a religious ceremony and you were born into a religious family and you think that's going to make you good with God. That makes you a child of flesh. You're just one outwardly. But God is after children of promise. 
See the difference there? He says, look, just because you're descended from Abraham does not mean that you're actually a follower of the God of the Bible. That just makes you a child of the flesh. It's only the children of promise who actually receive salvation. So the question should be, what is a child of promise? Let's pick up verses 10 to 13. And not only so, now he's going to give us an illustration. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, being Rebekah, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, a couple notes here. First of all, notice how much he's quoting the Old Testament. I didn't say quote and end quote every time, but he is just saturating. In fact, all of Romans, but particularly 9 through 11, are saturated in Old Testament quotes. He's appealing to the Jews, and he's going back to their book, the Old Testament, and he's saying, look, let me tell you a story. Remember Isaac? And Rebecca, you remember that story? Now, if you remember Isaac and Rebecca in the Old Testament, they were uh, a family that had promises by God that they would have children and the promises to the Jews would continue through their kids. And they had two kids. One was named Jacob. One was named Esau. Now, if you know this story, Esau was the one that Isaac, the dad, loved the most. He was athletic. He was kind of a a man's man. If you read the text, he was kind of a a manly kind of guy. He would go out hunting and gather food for his dad. And his dad had a special love for Esau. And you would have thought Esau was the one who was going to be, he, he kind of fulfilled all the requirements for being the one that would likely be picked. He was the father's favorite. Jacob, on the other hand, he was a bit of a snarky guy. He was a bit of a deceiver. You read Jacob's life and he's kind of a cheat He's kind of an underhanded kind of guy a number of times. He's kind of slick with the way he goes about stuff. He certainly isn't the kind of guy that you would expect. Yeah, this is the guy that's going to inherit the promises. And yet, what does the scripture say? Listen to this. Let me read that again. She was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now back up just a little bit. Verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, because of what they've done, but because of him who calls. Jacob was made a child of promise. Hear that. Before they had done anything, Jacob was selected. Before they were even born, it was Jacob that would be the child of promise, and Esau that would not be the child of promise. In order that, there's a so that statement. Why did God do it that way? So that, so that, in order that God's purpose of election, there's that word, unconditional election, might continue, not based on works, but based on him who elects before we're born. This is the doctrine of unconditional election. God chooses in his sovereignty before we're born. Now, this is very important. Now, let's think about a couple things. We've already covered in the book of Romans the doctrine of total depravity. What that means is, is that your sin in your life, you're falling from God's standard in Jesus Christ of who you ought to be morally before a holy God, is so great that no amount of effort or works or searching for God could ever overcome the gap that exists between you and a holy God. That's total depravity. 
Therefore, every single person born is utterly lost without hope. The sin that is inside of you is so great that nothing you could do could ever get to God. And yet God has mercy on some. God has mercy that extends through his unconditional election to choose to save some out of that miry pit and place them in a place of salvation. This is what this means. If you have faith in Jesus today, no matter what your story was from an earthly point of view, right? And people come from all different types of stories. Some of you were born into families. And from your earliest memory, your life is what I pray for all three of my girls. That their earliest memory when they grow up would be that they knew and loved Jesus Christ. Some of you grew up in a Christian home and you genuinely just had faith at a very young age and came up and never really had seasons of walking away. Others of you walked tremendously far away from God. You were running from God in the opposite direction. You you were not even close to finding God and yet God ransomed you out of that in, in an amazing turn of events. And some of you, from an earthly point of view, you studied and you searched and, and you discovered God. And yet no matter what your story is, there was always a deeper truth taking place. What this teaches is that if you're a follower of Christ, the deeper truth is whether or not you were born into a Christian home and placed your faith in Christ at the earliest memory possible or you were running away from God and found him on a, in a bad place, what had actually happened is that God had elected you before the foundation of the earth and written your name in the book of life. Oh, now that's a truth about God that ought to form how we worship. Unconditional election. Now, my guess is, as I begin to teach on this, some of you got questions. As I had questions when I began to study this doctrine. And Paul, foreseeing that you would have questions about God's sovereignty, answers some of those questions directly for us. In fact, he poses three questions himself. First, in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And then what does he say? I love this. By no means. All right, pause there. What's the question Paul is asking? All right, is God unjust? I mean, this whole scheme, if God's having mercy on some, but not others, does that make God unjust? And notice what he says, by no means, exclamation point. He stamps his foot down. He says, don't ever, ever equate the term injustice with God. Our very definition of what is just, what is unjust, is defined by whom he is. God does not submit to our form of what justice is. Real justice flows out of the very being of God. He is the definition of what is just and unjust. You cannot even use the term unjust to define God. He is the standard whereby we know what justice is. Psalm 89, 14, justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. He says, by no means, you cannot do that. And then he points us to this interesting illustration. Chapter 9, verses 17 and 18. Again, he's going to pull from the Old Testament. He says this, So it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Here's the illustration. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He has this illustration of Pharaoh. Now, do you remember Pharaoh? 
It's a story of the Israelites where they were in the Exodus and they were slaves underneath a tyrannical, terrible, abusive, God-hating regime of Pharaoh in Egypt. And time and time again, there's this fascinating interplay in the book of Exodus where it says Moses would go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, if you remember that. Let my people out of slavery to be their own people. And it would say Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let them go. And a few verses later, it would say, God hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Pharaoh hardened his heart and he would not let them go. God hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. It's this fascinating dialogue of what's happening. From an earthly point of view, Pharaoh's hardening his heart. What's happening behind the scenes? God is hardening his heart. Why? So that God's power might be manifest for all the world to see. Why did God allow Pharaoh's heart to be hardened? He had a higher purpose all along. You see that? God was using Pharaoh in the unfolding of history for a greater purpose that our eyes would not have been able to see in the moment if we were in it ourselves. But with hindsight, looking at the purposes of God and studying his revealed will, we can understand that God had a higher purpose so that his power might be seen. And look at what it says. It says, so that he might have mercy on whomever he wills. That's verse 18. Mercy. See, this is the good news of the gospel. Though we are totally depraved, unable to come to a holy God on our own because of the level of sin in our life, that's you and that's me. Your story is not that you were a pretty good person who God was mostly pleased with and all you needed with Jesus. Your story is that you were fully cut off from God, unable to come to a holy God in any type of relationship, but God looked at you and had mercy when he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross in your place. See, mercy, mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. Grace is when you get a free gift. Grace is when you get something you didn't earn. Mercy is when you don't get what you did earn. See, what we all earn before a holy God is wrath and separation from God. And if you don't realize that, then you have not studied the book of Romans yet. That's total depravity. But God has mercy on some. And it means that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, taking your place, substituting himself for you, he now extends mercy to you and you don't get what you earned. You get grace instead. Grace upon grace upon grace for sinners like us. Paul asks a second question. He says this in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Okay, now that's a good question. Now, if God foreordained, instituted before the foundations of the earth, whose name would be written in the book of life, how can he find fault? I'd say that's a fair question. And where Paul answers this is not from an earthly point of view necessarily fully satisfying. It leaves a bit of mystery in the hands of God. Verses 20 through 23. Let's listen to how he answers that question. But who are you, O man? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience? 
vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In order that, I love that phrase, why would he do that? In order that, where am I? In order that, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. What's the picture he's getting here? He, he brings up, and actually it's, he's quoting from Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah chapter 20. He, he brings up the picture of a potter in clay. And he says, what if, you think God's unfair? You, you think God's somehow being fair? That's like comparing clay to a potter. We're the clay, God is the potter. Now, have you ever seen a potter at a wheel? You know, he's, he's stepping on the, the wheel and it's spinning and he's molding this thing exactly how he wants it. He's got the vision. He's got the creativity. He knows exactly what he's trying to do. Could you imagine if the clay, as clay, looked back up to the potter and said, you don't know what you're doing. Why are you making me this way? You did it. You're doing it all wrong. That's the wrong way to make it. The potter would look back down at the clay and first of all say, you, you and I are not on the same uh, intellectual level. <laughs> What I know and what you know are two different things. What I see and what you see are two different things, right? If you could see what I see, you'd know that I'm making you exactly as you need to be made. He would look at that clay and say, you have the audacity to question the way that I made things? See, it's looking up at God and saying, God God has such sovereignty and vision far beyond our vision. He is not finite like we are. We see variables at a limited degree. He sees it all. He sees how it all fits together. Every story, every atom, every bit, it all works harmoniously together in God's perfect plan of historic redemption. God is the potter and he's molding this exactly as it would. So the people of God are called to be content in the knowledge that God is sovereign and praise God that he is. Praise God that we have a sovereign God who has things in control because the opposite of God's sovereignty is anarchy in the universe. If God is not sovereign and all and, and over everything, then we are utterly at the hands of an anarchaic universe and utter chance could dictate our future. Praise God that we are rooted in the sovereignty of a God who knows us and has predestined us and has our stories written. See, we can trust this God. See, I, I got a feeling, I think what Paul is getting after here. Whenever I try to answer this question for people, one of the places I get to is, is I got a feeling that when we get to heaven, we're going to look around and we're going to see how it all worked out. Now, now, a little picture for heaven for you. I think when we get to heaven, we're not going to have all information right away. I think we have an eternity of progressive growth in our knowledge, love, and worship of Jesus Christ. Progressive growth. We will learn more and more and more. Our hearts will expand more and more. It will be this eternal growth in the love and worship of Christ and enjoying his creation and the community he's given us. Now, I got a feeling that when we get to heaven, even without perfect knowledge, with growing knowledge, we're going to look around, we're going to see how God did it all, and we're going to say this. Yep, it all worked out exactly as it needed to work out. That with that greater bit of knowledge, greater awareness, with some more variables in our mind, we might look around and say, wherever I had questions, wherever I had doubts, wherever I as the clay thought God as the potter ought to do it a different way, <laughs> Man, was I wrong. God knew exactly what he was doing. You see, that's what Paul is trying to get at as he answers this question. Now, let me answer this third question. Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, Paul asks one more question. He says this, 
What shall we say then? Here's the third question. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that's by faith. But that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? So here's the question. So the Jewish people, the ethnic Israelites of the Old Testament, they pursued God by following all the laws that God gave them. Yet they didn't receive salvation. But Gentiles, who never even had the law, weren't even close to God, they're the ones who ultimately are getting all this salvation. Now pause, just so you know, we're going to get to Romans 11 where we talk about the future of what's going to happen with the Jewish people. Romans 11, two weeks. It's going to be a great sermon, I promise. It's going to be really fascinating. However, here's the question. They pursued the law and they didn't get it, but the Gentiles, they never pursued the law and now they're exploding with real salvation? What is happening? Romans 9, 32 through 10, 4. Let's listen to how Paul answers that. He says this, Because they, the Jews, did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's Jesus Christ. And then as it is written, this is a quote from the Jewish Old Testament. He says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, him, will not be put to shame. What is this rock of offense? What is this stone of stumbling that's going to go before the Jewish people that they're not going to believe in him even though they have all the promises? It's him. It's Jesus Christ. It was written in their book the whole time. It was as clear as day. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. Oh, this is so important. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own way, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It is not enough to have zeal for God and have that zeal aimed in a wrong direction. See, church, this is what the Jews of the Old Testament, the mistake they made. They had a zeal for God. Remember Jesus speaking to the Pharisees? Remember time and time again, he'd come to them and he'd say, you're doing outwardly the things I'm asking you to do. You tithe mint and rue, right? That means you, you give a tenth of all you have to the temple. And then he says, good, you should do that. But you have forgotten the greater things of the law. You have forgotten faith. You are living apart from the actual thing I want most of you. I want faith and not just any faith. I don't want faith in any random God out there. I want faith according to knowledge. That's what they just said. What does that mean? Faith according to who God actually is. The Trinitarian God. Christ is the end of the law. There is no God apart from the God of Scripture. And if we take all our religious zeal and we aim it at a place that is not true based on the knowledge God has made available to us through his word, if it is aimed at somewhere other than the God of the Bible, then it is not received as living, saving faith. He says you must have faith in the Son, in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. I want to plead with you 
If you are watching this and you have religious zeal, but it is not aimed at the Trinitarian God of the Bible and you are not worshiping and submitted to, submitting to Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you might have all the religious zeal in the world. You might spend hours in meditation and prayer aiming it at a God somewhere out there in the universe, but if it, if it is not aimed at the God of scriptures, then that is not saving faith. God wants a living relationship with you. And the only way that can happen is by submitting to Jesus Christ, whom he has put forward to pay your sin on the cross. Please submit to him. I did that when I was 18 years old. I was going in the wrong direction. And I tell you, I never looked back on that choice in my life. It was the greatest decision I've ever done. God has revealed himself in greater and greater and greater ways every day since that decision I made. And then you want to know something great? Here's, here's what the point of the passage is. See, from an earthly point of view, I thought I was making that decision. When I was 18, I thought I was the one who was saying, I choose you, God. But you know what Romans 9 teaches me? That while that's what happened from an earthly point of view, behind the scenes, it was God who had chosen me. He had written my book, my name in the book of life before I was even born. Oh, before I was born, he said, I'm choosing and electing you and I am going to bring you into my family. See, Park, what this ought to do, while this stirs up questions, before it stirs up questions, because we can't know everything. But before it stirs up questions, it ought to stir up worship in you. That the God of the universe would, would mark your name out and, and, and select your life and say, you're mine. See, bring that knowledge with you into your worship. Bring it with you into your prayer. Let it shape how you think about God and, and how you think about the world. Let it shape everything about you. This is not a doctrine to toss to the side and just say, well, pastor knows about it. This is to shape your life to bring you greater and greater worship because Jesus is worthy of it all. Amen? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you with passion and we want to worship you in truth. And so Jesus, I pray that you would strip away every false thought we've ever had about who you are, about what God is like. We want to know you who you really are. And when we learn you with greater clarity, when we, when we store your word up in your heart, then we know more about you and we worship you with greater clarity and greater strength and greater zeal and passion and it's aimed in the right direction. Oh God, Holy Spirit, would you form this in our people, we pray. In Jesus' name.